This evening we turn to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things, in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The text to which I call your attention this evening for this preparatory service is Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, immediately acknowledging the praiseworthiness of God 
points to him as the source of all the blessings that we enjoy as Christians. He is the source of all blessedness, having taken us unto himself in Christ Jesus, in whom alone is found all spiritual blessing. The eternal fountain of this blessedness that we enjoy in Christ Jesus is God's sovereign and eternal decree of election in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ, and here is the connection to verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. When we who are so conscious of our sins and imperfection stand before the treasures of God and ask how we could possibly be connected with such immense bounties of grace, the apostle immediately points to God himself. And that's really an astounding approach when you think about it. What is it that accounts for a person receiving such spiritual blessings as are referred to in verse 3 and which we commemorate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper? What is it that leads anyone to become a Christian and to enjoy all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus? Certainly many in the church today would say immediately that a person becomes a Christian by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Others would say we enjoy God's blessings by accepting him as our personal Savior. But that's not the answer given here, nor is that the language found consistent with the Bible. Others perhaps would begin with Christ and would point out that all this becomes possible because of what Christ has done for us and what he's still doing, and we wouldn't argue with that, but there's a truth that lies deeper. The apostle doesn't begin with anything in time. He goes right back into eternity, into the very counsel of God, the determinate counsel of God himself. And we do well to note by way of introduction that this approach is entirely consistent with all Scripture. The Bible always begins with God. And that's where we must begin too. The Bible, after all, is God's revelation of himself, of what he has done and what he has promised and what he is doing All scripture is God's revelation of himself in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul points to God, the absolutely sovereign God, the God who is God alone. And when you consider this amazing truth in its context, you will see and experience the truth of sovereign predestination as a most beautiful truth. And one of the most comforting doctrines revealed in Holy Scripture to us who believe. The purpose of election must be clearly understood by us. The purpose, very simply, is to reveal the glory of God. It's to reveal His glory in Christ and in all that He did and does. But that glory is also revealed in the saints that are given to Christ, in you and in me. He has chosen us in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him, thus showing his praise, the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the central theme of this text. 
And so in that very doctrine of election is found our very purpose for living. A magnificent purpose which is enjoyed in the very fellowship of him who so predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Don't overlook the fact the apostle doesn't treat this abstractly. Speaking about the predestination of the church or of the elect or even of believers. He makes it personal. Including himself and and all the believers in the church at Ephesus saying, Blessed be God according as he hath chosen us, having predestinated us, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. And his approach is purposeful. He wants the believers in Ephesus, as well as you and me, to be personally conscious of this truth, and to confess its personal application. We have to do that also in the coming week as we approach the Lord's table. So with that in mind, we consider the text under the theme, Predestinated Unto Praise. And we notice, first of all, eternally chosen, secondly, wonderfully accepted, and finally, beautifully molded. The text teaches us, consistent with all scripture, that we are eternally chosen, sovereignly predestinated unto the place God has given us in Christ Jesus. Now let's face the question, first of all, what is predestination? And to answer that question, we have to understand that right here we stand before the incomprehensible love of God. It's a love that radiates from eternity. It's a love that reaches forth with purpose and embraces its objects with an unbreakable embrace. And when we make this personal, as the text does, then we say that the love of God has embraced us, determining also that we should be those who serve to glorify God forever. Now this this is an absolutely astounding truth when you approach it from the viewpoint of why am I a Christian? What, What is there that has set me apart? Why is there in me a love for God? A love for His truth? a desire to serve him, a longing to be fed by him. Where does that come from? It's possible, you see, to approach the question, what is predestination, merely from a theoretical point of view, as a matter of basic biblical doctrine. But look at it as Paul does. Reflecting upon us and our place before God and why we are what we are and immediately it becomes evident we're talking about something glorious. Something which reflects the amazing glory of the triune God. Look at it from this point of view for a moment. Why Why am I here in the house of God on this Sunday? While almost all the world has no interest in worshiping him and instead are filling their day with all kinds of work and pleasure. Why am I different? What has given me an interest in the things of God? What has separated me from from those others? 
Has this desire and this pursuit after God risen from myself? Am I better than others? Is it just that some of us are good people and walk with the good God while others lack the goodness that that we have? We know that isn't it, don't we? We don't even have to have to go on and, and read the first part of Paul's second chapter where he spells out the truth of our total depravity to know that there's nothing in us to make us desirable to God. We are sinners. Fallen in Adam. That's our condition as we make our appearance on the stage of history. And even though there are times when when we might like to lift up ourselves in pride and think that we're not so bad, we only fool ourselves if we believe less than what the Bible reveals concerning us. So I say when Paul points, points to God, and to eternity. And when he speaks about predestination and sovereign election as the reason we are what we are, he points to the love of God, sovereign and eternal in the heavens. But the fact that God's love is on the foreground is evident not only when you consider this text from the viewpoint of your own place before him and your own relationship to him, but more particularly when you remember the significance of that which he says in each of these verses. Namely, that there is a connection between us and Christ, which God has established by his election of grace. There's a relationship between us and Christ that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. God has chosen us in him, we read in verse 4. He has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, says verse 5. And verse 6 also calls attention to that union with Christ, when Paul writes that God has made us accepted in the Beloved. In other words, by this sovereign act of predestinating love, God views us in union with his Son. Election is not merely, as is sometimes stated, God's choice of persons to eternal salvation. It's a choice of them in Christ. In Christ. Never are those objects of election seen apart from Christ. Don't forget, Scripture also speaks of Christ as the elect. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God calls his people to the Messiah, saying, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. And when Paul reveals to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, then we can only conceive of it in such a way that God chose Christ and the elect in Christ in one and the same eternal act. Because just as with the natural body, the head is not formed first, and then the body, but both are called into being at the same moment So it is with eternal election. Now bear in mind, Christ was not chosen to be the Son of God by virtue of this election. He's the Son of God from eternity. 
Election speaks of his calling and work as head and mediator. What's a head without the body? What's a mediator without a people whom he represents? So God chose Christ and his elect people in him by one and the same eternal act in which Christ has the preeminence. Viewing us then, therefore, in union with his Son. He loved us with the same love wherewith he loved his only begotten son from eternity. As Jesus reveals in John 17, verse 23. This truth of God's love being intricately connected with our predestination adds weight to making a slight change in the way we read the last part of verse 4 in its connection with verse 5. You might remember that in the original language, the Greek language, there was no punctuation. It's possible, therefore, to leave the break where it is in our English Bible. Holy and without blame before him in love. But it's not so easy to see how that in love modifies what goes before it. But if we join the words in love to the next clause, making those words the beginning of verse 5, the biblical truth of predestination as a most blessed act of the love of God is confirmed. Love. His own sovereign and eternal, and we might add unmerited love, is the reason God has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And then also the text shows harmony with the truth John expresses in 1 John 3 verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. This sovereign act of God predestinating us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, which amazing expression we have yet to consider, This wonderful election of grace happened, says verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. And here we are brought face to face with the most amazing aspect of that wonder of sovereign predestination. The fact that God chose us is entirely apart from anything that we have ever done or said or thought and apart from anything that he saw in us that would make us desirable because there was nothing but according to the good pleasure of his will. You realize, don't you, we, we stand here on holy ground. we are brought face to face with something of the heart and mind of God himself. Earthly wings could never carry us to that height. God alone can reveal it to us. It wasn't, you understand, that God saw those who would believe on him and then chose them. This election has nothing to do with with who a man is or what he has done. To put it in the language of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, you've been chosen, set apart 
by God's sovereign and determinative choice in order that you might be saved through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And Paul continues, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not merely the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. This is the teaching of all Scripture. The Lord Jesus himself, in rebuking the unbelieving Jews to whom he preached at the temple, said in John 10, verse 26, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. One must be a sheep of Christ, given him of the Father, before he can believe and before he can praise him who is the absolutely sovereign God. It's no wonder then that this truth is so distasteful to the natural man. Without the eyes of faith, without the work of the Spirit, to receive this spiritual truth, we have a doctrine here that's insulting to us. It's a doctrine that, even apart from the very real truth of total depravity, reveals that man is nothing and God is everything. God is the divine potter, the master craftsman, We are but clay. But I preach to you who join in this confession, blessed be God. Don't you see how this brings us face to face before his majesty and his glory? The glorious triune God who lacked nothing, had need of no one, determined from eternity to set a people apart for himself and to reveal to them his majesty and glory by taking them into the glorious fellowship of his own covenant life. He chose us in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us. What an amazing truth. You've noticed that verse 4 speaks of God choosing us, while verse 5 speaks of him having predestinated us. Those are indeed two different words. And although the idea of each is similar and inseparable, there's a distinction that must be maintained. Both refer to God's eternal decree. His decree, which you remember does not merely precede the thing, but it actually brings it about. The word chosen is the word commonly translated by election. It means that God has made a separation, chosen out of the whole human race, a people in Christ. And the idea is not that the race was there and God just handpicked a few. That's not the idea. Remember, this is before the foundation of the world. The idea, therefore, is that this act of separation is the fruit of God's determinative will. God's election of his people as well as his determinative rejection or reprobation of all others is absolutely sovereign. Sin, therefore, and even reprobation for that matter, does not precede election. It rather serves election. 
The term predestinated looks at the same truth, but from a little different perspective. The term itself speaks of determining something beforehand. And this refers to the same eternal decree of God, but while the decree of election or choosing speaks of God's decree with direct reference to persons, predestination speaks of that decree as things or circumstances stand in relationship to the persons which are the objects of his decree. We have been predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, unto God himself, and that to the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace. And that's why our theme is predestinated unto praise. By this eternal decree of God, you and I have been wonderfully accepted in Jesus Christ, his Son. And that's our second main point this evening. Wonderfully accepted. God has predestinated us, in the words of verse 5, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. You and I, who were lost, who had no connection to the family of God, have been made his own children. That's the idea. Remember, We've seen that that blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has chosen us in him, in Christ. Now think for a moment of the love of God for his Son. It's an infinite love. So what we are told here, also in harmony with that love expressed in predestination, God having chosen us in Christ, poured out his love towards us, seeing us one with his Son. And viewing us in Christ, he would make us holy and righteous. But he would do more. He would adopt us. He would adopt us as his own children and love us with the same love with which he loves his son. Being chosen in Christ, the very elect, you and I, become sons of God. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is the true and eternal son of one subsistence with the Father. He can say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. From eternity, God marked us as his even unto the adoption by Jesus Christ. He did so unto himself. in choosing the church in Christ unto holiness, in predestinating her unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, he would bring her into union and communion with himself. He would take us into his own covenant life of fellowship and love. Drink deeply of this truth, beloved. How refreshing you will find it. Adoption, you understand, says something about exiles. Prior to this adoption, as God accomplishes it in time, you and I were outside the fellowship of his family. Now, there's special significance in the use of that term adoption, as we've heard explained any number of times. But 
the nature of the Christian as a new man is not determined by adoption, but by regeneration, being born again. We become children of God when we are born again. It's by that wonder work of regeneration, by that work of the Holy Spirit, that we become partakers of the divine nature. But adoption conveys a different idea. The term adoption speaks rather of a legal standing, which declares our new relationship to God. By adoption, therefore, we are introduced as sons and daughters of God, given the privileges that belong to membership in his family. The apostle, in drawing our attention to the the glorious God, our Redeemer, would have us see what a privileged place he's given us. There's no higher position in all the world. John puts it this way in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. The world has nothing comparable. The world can give all kinds of honors to men, can shower their praises upon men. The world has many things. But how, look how few are partakers of the world's glory and things. And then those things are fleeting. There's death in everything. But when we have the fellowship of God being members of his family, when we are partakers of his lasting riches of grace, of grace and glory, it makes no difference what place we occupy in society or what things we have or don't have. We have a privilege to which nothing can compare. And while the spirit of adoption works in your heart, the cry, Abba, Father, you will find that your adoption is experienced only in a very small measure now, but the time is coming when your adoption will be published throughout the universe to the glory of God the Father. But it's also by this sovereign work of God's grace that you and I are found accepted in the Beloved. God has made us accepted in the Beloved. That Beloved is Christ. The text speaks of our acceptance in Him. Let's note and never forget the truth. Our acceptance with God is only in Christ. His Beloved Son. There is no truth in the Bible more significant than that expressed in the two words, in Christ, in Him. You find that expression repeatedly in the Bible. It's the most concise definition of a Christian. To be in Christ. And the way it's used in this text is of great significance for us who will maintain the truth of God's sovereign and particular grace. For that which speaks of God making us accepted speaks literally of God gracing us or pursuing us by His grace. God's grace is particular, never common. Acceptance is found by it. And that grace comes only in consequence of our union with Christ and of being so identified with him as to be viewed with the same favor as he is by our Heavenly Father. 
The grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus radiates through the Holy Spirit and Word into the very depths of our hearts and lives and fills us. That's how we begin our song of praise in Him. That's the only way we live lives of praise to our Redeemer. Grace of God radiates in us that He Himself is glorified by the works of His own hands. You believe that? What a glorious light this shines upon the union of the church with Christ and the fruit of that union. How close, how intimate must be the relationship between us and Christ if by virtue of it the Father loves us with the same love, rejoices over us with the same delight as he does his only begotten Son. How amazing is that bond between us and Christ. Established from eternity. When God reveals toward us the grace that radiates in His Son. Yes, this union with Christ is the only ground for acceptance with Him. Only in Christ can be enjoyed the streams of love and grace and mercy that flow from the ever-blessed God, the perfectly Holy One. From here, the apostle will go on to point out how that love and mercy was revealed, namely in the redemption that was through Christ's blood, in the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But it all begins with the amazing truth that we are considering this evening. You and I have been predestinated unto praise, chosen in Christ, from before the foundation of the world. And so Christ would give himself for his church. As we read in Ephesians 5 verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we conclude our consideration of this text by calling attention to the fact that it is according to this sovereign decree of God that we are also beautifully molded into handiworks of his grace. He has chosen us in Christ with the purpose that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now, obviously, these verses tonight contain so much truth that we could easily preach a number of sermons from them. But giving just an overview of this text, we're neglecting the full treatment of some critically important truths, not the least of which is found in the last part of verse 4. And yet this truth is not unfamiliar to you who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's written in your heart. And on many occasions, we've had opportunity to set before you these matters from other portions of Scripture. Most often, however, these truths are set before us by way of admonition or exhortation. God calls us unto holy lives. He has said to his people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, be ye holy for I am holy. He has warned us in Hebrews 12 verse 14 that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Indeed, the whole of our Christian life is to be lived as a life of spiritual separation unto God. And holiness is to permeate every aspect of our lives. 
But here we are told that we have been chosen in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him. It's the purpose of God with respect to his people in Christ to remove the effects of sin and the fall. It's his object in our salvation to rectify completely the horrible consequences of the fall into sin and in us personally. To be holy and without blame are counterparts of each other. Both refer to sanctification. Holiness speaks of an inward state of purity, while blamelessness refers to that which is outward, being without blemish. By his grace and in Christ and according to his sovereign decree, God works in us, the spiritual capacity to delight in God and to delight in Him in such a way that we hate what offends Him. Sin, our own sin, every sin is a source of grief to us. And there arises within us the fervent desire to walk blameless before him, to live to his glory. Those spiritual virtues cannot be ours except we are washed by Christ's blood and cleansed by his spirit. But these virtues are sure in us. God has chosen us to reflect these very virtues. Holiness, people of God, is not some mechanical conformity to law. And it certainly isn't merely being a decent person. Holiness is positive. Holiness is essentially a matter of loving God, living in the consciousness of the place he has given us in his own covenant life. It's true, we experience that now only as a small beginning, but at the same time, this text makes clear that no man can claim election while living in unholiness before God. And no man can lay claim to the adoption of God when he lives in rejection of the rules of God's house. Election and holiness, predestination and godliness, are inseparable. They're inseparable by God's eternal decree. That beautiful handiwork of his own sovereign determination is summed up in verse 6 where Paul tells us that this great God has done all these things to the praise of the glory of his grace. What God does, he does to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's true of all things. Doesn't matter if you and I can't see it. It doesn't matter if, if we were not there when he unfolds the works of his hands. All the wonders of creation all the wonders of God's providence, all the works of grace in your life and mine are for his own glory. But when you stand before the wonder work of our salvation, we are pointed to God's sovereign purpose in it all. All these things are to the praise 
of the glory of His grace. Grace is beauty. That's the fundamental meaning of that term. The most basic meaning of grace is beauty. The grace of God is the beauty of Him who reveals Himself in His own works, in all His virtues, in all His beauty. God shines forth in His revelation and in the works of His own hand. And so is revealed the glory of His grace. Nowhere does that grace radiate with greater glory than by God's work in you and in me, in His church, in Christ. It's the gospel of grace that we preach. The gospel by which God reveals Himself to us in all His glory. It's this way of saving sinners by grace, sovereignly and irresistibly, according as He hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is this way of His predestinating us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, which makes the gospel so sweet to our ears. We know no other way of salvation. And hearing this gospel, the grace of God radiates in us, lifting us up and moving us to praise our Redeemer. For so he molds us as instruments of his glory, instruments of his praise. And the work that he has begun shall be fully accomplished. And then we shall join those who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are humbled again by thy word, but rejoice in the riches of thy glory and grace revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Humbled by the fact that thou dost reveal to us thine own mind from before the foundation of the world. And we thank thee that that wonderful work of predestination is also brought by thee to fruition in our salvation in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.